With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to episode 16 of the Circles Off podcast. I'm Rob Pozzola, joined by Johnny from Betstamp. And I know it's been a few weeks since we uh, released an episode and that's partly because of the dog days of summer but also we're just kind of working on a guest schedule that's coming up Uh, and we're excited to to have this as a guest episode where we're going to welcome in porter if you follow him on twitter uh, myself and johnny came across his account a long time ago and um, feel that he's fairly sharp and wanted to get his story and he's kind of been involved in the gambling twitter community for a while but follow him on twitter at mlbk's psychic and if you read his description, I turn yo pigs, C to C bets, bet eagle, twelve checkers, webmail ninety nine into ATM machines. And for those people who don't know what yo pig and bet eagle are, uh, they're just different paper heads, um, which are popular in the community and can be beat. And uh, there are a lot of people out there that beat them. So Porter is one of them, and we welcome him in to the Circles Off podcast. How you doing today, Porter? Good, good. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. This is actually my first podcast, and um, glad Betstamp putting me on. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Um, I came across your account many years ago, and you're pretty active in the RAS Slack as well, which we'll talk about later on as well. But um, I have a I don't like I don't want I don't want to say I've had a knack for you know, seeing or being able to tell who's sharp and who's not. But obviously, a lot of things that uh, you say in the, the public forums are pretty sharp, and you do help educate people a lot in this space as well. So we're very interested to have you on. But um, not many people really know what you do for uh, a day-to-day or, or what your story is. So um, why don't you give some people some background on yourself, how you got involved in betting, and, and kind of what you do today? Yeah, so originally, my background was... I was a major in economics, then I got a master's in financial engineering. For better part of a decade, I was, I guess you would say, a professional poker player. And at a certain point, I moved abroad, I worked as an economist, and then didn't see so much upside future there, and then came back to America and didn't really know what to do. So today, I guess you would say, I mean, what most people would call or say what I do is basically I'm a sharp. I originate plays and then I bet them. Um, But but it's more than just that. Being a sharp, there are a lot of different components in this business. So besides just being a sharp, I'm also the person who gathers the accounts to actually get volume because having data, having information, it's not that valuable if you don't have anything to do with it. So, you know more work but basically uh, it's a one-stop shop person kind of does everything so how I started in sports betting was a long time ago like I said before I was a poker player and people at the table were just always talking about betting and I just sort of ignored it I just figured they were degenerating their money away which they probably were and I just kind of let it go so played would hear did nothing about it. In 2016, 
I met this guy and uh, RG forum, basically it was just a little chat box and people would chat. And kind of like you said before, you had a knack for listening to people and kind of deciding if they knew what they were talking about or not. So this chat was just filled with a whole bunch of nonsense. There was one guy in there that just kept saying these things that really resonated, how it's not really about the sports, you know, coming from a math background, I started to understand how it's, it's a little bit different than just sports. That's not what's really going on here. So basically he kind of mentored me, gave me really good advice. And I was, I did okay in the DFS at the same time, just coincidentally had another buddy who I was playing poker with for years, but he was a friend outside of poker too. He just sort of told me about sports betting and it was interesting. He basically, it's, it's kind of a funny story. Um, he just told me about a site. <clears throat> Actually, it's an OG site that a lot of DFS players use for or used to use for player models. And <clears throat> he would just look for deviations in those models and then bet it on sites. So I tried this for about three weeks and every single week I lost a unit. And at the same time, he's telling me, oh, how well he's doing, how well he's doing. So I was like, hey, hey hold, hold on a second. What's really going on? So lo and behold, he was what he was really doing was he was giving it to some group. So I got involved in that process with him for a brief period of time. And I would notice they would do these, you know, player props. And while I was researching for DFS at the same time, they would have some plays that just, they made no sense to me. And this is just homage if that person's listening. Yeah, Blake Griffin unders. So anyways, at the same time, uh, I don't know, they were betting and baseball was going on and they, I didn't really understand anything about the industry and they stopped. And I was like, Hey, I don't want them to stop. I want them to keep going. And I have no idea why they stopped. Maybe a vacation, maybe the lines were bad. Again, I didn't really understand anything. So I said to myself, hold on a second. I know this has got to be something math based. So let me try and figure this out. So the first thing I did after that was that original uh, DFS friend, he told me about some site. It seemed like a good site. Basically, it just told you deviations from the, uh, basically it took a sharp book and showed you deviations on a square book. And after I bet there like 30,000, I lost 500 bucks. And I was like, hey, hey, what's going on? And I think I was one of their bigger users on one of these uh, offshores. So they just gave me the Excel sheet. And at the time, I didn't understand what it was, but it's, you know, CLV, closing line value. I really wasn't getting it. So from there, I realized, you know what, it's if I want to be involved in this, it's kind of up to me. I need to actually figure out, sit down, model, do the work of understanding what sports betting is, how the markets work. And, you know, through a math based approach, uh, kind of. Learn, learned what needed to be done. And then uh, I think his name was Joe Sharp or Poker Joe or, or something like that. He's on SBR forums and he wrote basically the seminal piece for my career. It was <clears throat> some article about closing line value. And the moment I really understood what CLV meant was when, ev when everything clicked. The rest just kind of growing and learning and networking 
But after really that article, it kind of just put everything together for me and understanding how this market is just another market. Like there's financial markets, the bond markets, you know, they're day traders. Sports betting isn't that unique. It's just another market that can be exploited. And uh, if there's inefficiencies, you know, there's profit to be made. Right. So it's a little bit of a unique story there uh, coming from, obviously, as you're saying, being an economist and then taking those backgrounds and saying, okay, you know what, I can put this into any market and choosing sports betting. So questions for you then now are, um, A, was there anything specific about sports betting that kind of drew you to that? But also, like, do you mind speaking a little more about your day-to-day now then? So like, what is the day-to-day? So you mentioned you're an originator. We've talked about the difference between originators, steam chasers, and things on this podcast. Um, so what, what's your day to day then? Are you doing a lot of, is it Excel coding different models? Speak about that a little. Yeah. So, so I actually have a team that, that, that helps me, you know, there, there's just no way in this industry, most of the people in my position that they, they have people helping them, you know? So how, how it works is I have people who input, for example, or I have people that I have a specific research project that I give them or news, you know, news is important. There's no way that all these you know, minute details that aren't the actual handicapping can be done by one person or they can, they just can't be done at a high level. So in general, I just kind of wake up, make sure that the models are correct. And then we just start grinding. We open up the lines, we look. My business is more, it's a combination of originating and understanding the market. What understanding the market means is that there are market inefficiencies and it's my job to kind of figure out where those inefficiencies are. So you start with a base, your model, your understanding, and then you work through the market. You know, if I was tasked with creating all of the lines, it's a difficult job. And that in and there of itself kind of tells you that there's got to be mistakes along the way that you can attack. So I try to come at it from the other angle of where are the mistakes in the market? Then I use my base to find that kind of show me those mistakes. And then I dive in and look for the errors. I mean, five years ago, the business was just about opening up, waking up, clicking refresh as fast as possible, or having some kind of beep notification when a line opens, rushing on over and clicking as fast as humanly possible for the other people, you know, get there. Today, that, that's no longer the market. The lines today are tougher than the lines were five years ago. I wish I could even guess what the lines looked like 10 years ago. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, that, that's cool. I was going to also ask Rob mentioned your Twitter bio. So, um, you mentioned that you basically are are focusing on the the prop markets. You're turning all these, these accounts into ATM machines, high ROI and things like that. So I know from discussions we've had that you focus on the smaller markets, just like the stuff you're talking about now. Is there any reason why you focus on small versus larger markets? Yeah. So I'm, I'm known as the small market guy, which is usually an insult in this industry. That, that doesn't actually mean that I can't turn a 1% or 2 or 3% ROI in the bigger markets. It, it just means that I don't think that's the best avenue to attack in this business. I'm confident um, I can make me and my partners a better income with less stress and variance, which is something never talked about You know, when you're betting major markets, what it actually means to have a 2% ROI. You know, maybe a blackjack, you know, card counter can understand what that means, but a casual, a casual doesn't really understand what's going on and what those low ROIs actually mean. And if you kind of work in a manner that's, so look, if you 
go to groups to get down your information, you're not really building your network. You're, you're building their network more. And it's true that if you've been in this industry a really long time, it's probably harder to find. It's just not as valuable to those groups, the small markets, because they're able they're more interested in volume to, to someone who's been in the game a long time. Variance doesn't mean anything to them, but if you're mostly networking through a lot of small guys, guys with one, two, three, four accounts, they can't handle those swings, you know? And even if you offer them a free roll, most of them are greedy because they don't really understand what 2% is, or, or sorry, they're not greedy. They just don't understand. They're, they're trying to make as much money as possible. So they're interested in taking that risk with you. And there are swings and a 2% really means that they're going to experience a lot of turbulence. Mm -hmm. So for me to kind of nurture and raise them along in the process of building and growing with me, I'm trying to make it as stress-free and, 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 and not painful, really. It's painful to go weeks. You know, I, I've heard that it, I've heard many times, you know, straight sharp guys say that it's acceptable to have break-even seasons. To me, that's that's ludicrous. And that makes it very difficult to grow because they're not going to stick around with you. The guys with a, just a couple accounts to to grow with you on that journey if it's really bumpy. Yeah, so, I think. Uh, sorry, Johnny. A lot of things that you're, you're saying, um, they kind of hit home with me or, or um, I've personally experienced a lot of what you're talking about. So we share very similar backgrounds where um, I got my leap into sports betting from DFS where I was doing pretty well off DFS running player level models and then kind of the edge was starting to dry up. And I said, well, why don't I just apply this to sports instead? And people don't really know this about me, but when I first started betting on sports seriously, it was mostly props um, before I started to experience the accounts getting limited, losing accounts. And it became sort of a, a stressful thing for me to kind of replenish those or just to create new accounts and things of that nature. So I said, why don't I take these models and apply them to um, the larger market and um, eventually got ended up working with a group where um, now I barely place any of my own bets, right? I just kind of send out a bet and it, it gets placed on my behalf. A lot of people are always messaging me on Twitter. Oh yeah, why don't you show a screenshot of this bet? It's like, well, I actually can't. People just turn in an amount to me and I expect them to pay me at the end of the month and whatever. Um, but I kind of arrived at a different conclusion than you did. Um, and I think it comes down to, and we've talked about this myself and Johnny before on this podcast, individual motivations, I guess, because for me in my shoes, um, there's just this peace of mind of not having to grind on a day-to-day -day basis. Like I still have to create my numbers. I still have to be on top of things, but I kind of can just send things out, uh, be guaranteed a bet size, not have to worry about replenishing the accounts. Um, whereas on your side... I'm not I'm not disparaging it or anything. I think to each their own, but it seems like more of a um I don't I don't want to say day-to-day -day grind, but certainly there's there is more involved in that day-to-day. -day. So you can produce a higher ROI, but it also comes at the expense of working harder. And in some cases, it seems like that's not a problem. In your case, it seems like working hard is it's just something that you like to do. Like it's enjoyable for you. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say when I not not today, but when I really was kind of solo eagle doing every single possible step, I was putting in 100 hours a week. But to, to be honest, that's not so unique in entrepreneurial businesses. And I think there's this fixation a lot of times that sports betting is some unique 
different, you know, a lot of people think they can just escape and enter easy money, you know, if they just run good or, or whatever. But, you know, if you're going to succeed in any entrepreneurial business, it's the same thing. It can be, you know, growing your podcast, sports betting, starting a company that sells jewelry. It's, it's all the same business components, grinding, hard work, termination, probably liking what you do. That, that's probably important in being able to put in those hours. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely had break-even seasons in sports. Uh, it's de- I can definitely say that when that happens, you start to question why you're doing something. So I think that's like a point in your favor. I've definitely had months of December 2019. I had a minus 18% ROI betting on the NHL. I lost like 13 or 14 straight overtime and shootout games. You get to the end of the month and you're like, why am I doing this? Why don't I just go back to smaller markets and just keep grinding out harder, uh, higher ROI uh, and replenishing those accounts? So I can definitely see your point of view. I completely understand why you would go that route. Uh, I'm just curious as to whether you do dabble in larger markets at all right now, or is it just something where strictly props, strictly smaller stuff, that's where your big edge is. You're not going to worry about uh, betting into like you know full game sides and totals. Before we move on here, sorry, Porter, I just want to take a quick step back and explain to any listeners who might not be following because it is a little bit of a difficult combo. So um, what Rob is saying is, so Rob's an originator and Porter is also an originator. Where they're different here is since Rob is playing in a bigger market such as NHL, he can now work with somebody who has accounts and he can now just say, okay, give me the Leafs, give me the Red Wings, give me the, the Avalanche at this price, and he's going to get his fill. So he's not going to actually have to bet those himself and go through the, the hassle of collecting like 50 to 100 accounts. Whereas since Porter is dealing the smaller markets, uh, it's a lot harder for him to now go and, and find a mover and say, okay, give me uh, Jason Tatum over on points, rebounds, and assists. Because if he, if he works with those movers, he's going to make significantly less money uh, because they're going to give him lower fills. So what Porter's doing is actually collecting all the accounts himself and going through the hassle and the grind and the day-to-day of that. But in exchange, he's making you know uh, a higher ROI on his own stuff. So just want to take a step back to explain to the listeners, uh, would you guys say that's accurate, both of you? And then, and then, sorry, I'll let Porter answer the question. Yep, for sure, on my end. Yeah, yeah that, that's exactly it. Um, I had a similar in 2017, you know, for me, I had basically Golden State Warriors every single day. I basically lost the units upon units upon units, spending their unders when they would make a, I don't know, new record NBA threes <laughs> every single uh, game. And for me, since I started 2016, so it's been about five years now, I, that moment that I, it's my longest break even stretch. And that was five weeks. And at that point I canceled my, because I was so upset at kind of, you know, it's a big risk to enter the sports betting industry when you kind of have a background where you could have been successful in something else. So I kind of had this mindset of how can I turn this fun, interesting, unique endeavor and try to make it today. Maybe I wouldn't take this approach, but try to turn it into kind of, a paycheck safe job. And I quickly realized that's just not the realities of straights. Yeah, you'll turn a profit, but you just can't, can't, it's, there are swings. And I, at the time was just trying to limit those swings. I said to myself, wow, I'm taking a big risk, taking a different career path. How do I make this less risky, less swingy, more normal to, you know, 
normal to, to, to someone listening to what I'm doing. Right. And that makes total sense. Um, just on the side of potentially being able to keep accounts longer by betting um, uh, major markets, like betting NFL sides, I, including props in an account where you're betting sides, let's say half an hour before a game, I, I would imagine that you're much more likely to be able to keep that account uh, long term. Whereas if you're just firing props into that account. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll work with other groups on some stuff to put in their straight sharp. But, but let me tell you this, what I think is sort of a myth. Let's say college basketball and you bet a line under 138.5, right? And obviously if you're big enough, but the line's going to close 132.5. Mm-hmm. You know, it's pretty easy for the person to identify, hey, look, they beat that by a lot of points. While there's no official, there's no penny or bookmaker, any of these big sharp sites there's no official prop closing line. Sure, maybe the line was beat, but it, it can't just you, they can't just say, oh, this for sure is sharp. While if you're beating a large market by a lot of points, uh, maybe college basketball is not the largest market, but it's a market that you people beat by a lot of points. Same with college football. It's pretty easy to identify, hey, these lines are, are beat all the time, you know, and it's going to happen consistently too if you're a really large originator person moving lines. Yeah, that's a valid point. Yeah, it's something that I've always thought as well. I've heard it from a few really sharp people in industry is that when you're getting these accounts, obviously everyone knows eventually you're going to get cut off if you win enough money. But uh, the reality is like sometimes there's a difference between like, are you are they going to cut your account because you're playing props or are they going to cut your account just because you're winning? At the end of the day, w- winning is what cuts accounts. So if you're playing props and you're playing 100 props a day, but you're still losing every single day, then they're going to leave your account open. Well, that, I don't agree with that. Like, I, I'm just from my personal experience, and this was one of the most frustrating things for me early in early going betting NHL. And maybe NHL is a different market than uh, some of the, the other majors like MLB, NFL. But I would have losing months on NHL accounts. Um, but because I was crushing lines, I'd get cut off. So I'd actually go meet up with someone to pay them. And they'd be like, okay, this is like the last payment we're actually taking from you. We're shutting down the account, and, and this, which is obviously horrible because you're paying out money. You're like, at least give me the chance to win my money back. But I, I do think that, uh, I guess it all depends, right? It's all relative on on who you're betting with and, and what they value. But for the most part, I do think a lot of people will look at that at closing line value, like Porter said, and say, well, this guy actually knows what he's doing. And maybe he's not winning right now, but in the long run, he's going to burn us. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're making a trade-off between reducing variance and reducing risk and losing more accounts. I mean, there is some value to reducing stress. Now, I'm not talking about my stress. I'm talking about the smaller guy who's coming into the into the industry. And you know what? I've heard the argument about extending accounts. And okay, fine, the account will be extended, but most places they have a range, some type of range. I, nobody can tell you the exact range, but it's somewhere. You know, they have X amount of dollars, give or take 10, 20, 15%. Is it really that valuable to extend an account three more months to make an extra 15% or 10% or God knows what over beating them quick and being cut off? If the end goal is to enjoy the length of the accounts, you're right, it's bad. But if the end goal is to make money, then it's not the worst sacrifice in the world to give up 10, 15% and reduce your time being involved in a certain account by a month or two. It just depends kind of what your end goal is. I know there's this 
fear about losing the accounts, but the focus is wrong. The, oh, sorry, the focus is maybe the focus should be just how much you're making and that it's not so bad to make that amount in a shorter period of time, even if it's a little bit less. Not a little bit, it could be a lot less sometimes, but not always. It, in the end, it just really depends on your relations with the accounts that you're getting. I think this is a really great point that you make because uh, I think especially in, in the gambling Twitter community or just amongst pro bettors, there's often arguments about the right way to do something. Like this is the way you should be doing something. This is the way you should be. And people, you know, they, they end up arguing over this stuff. But the what you what you said really hits home with me because it's everybody has different end goals, right? And I think when you have a goal in mind, you're working to achieve that goal. And not everyone's goals are similar. Uh, in fact, in a lot of cases, they're very different. For me, I'd like to retire by the time I'm 50, but I don't really want to be putting in 80 hours a week on sports betting. I want to spend like 15, 20 hours and I want to be able to golf whenever I want to or do whatever I want. And I'm in the minority on that for sure. I know there's a lot of people who are like, no, no, I just want to make as much money as humanly possible. There are people like, well, I don't want to have to collect accounts. I want to make these accounts last as long as possible. So I think that's um, where a lot of arguments come into place in this space is where people all have different end goals um, and no one can really see it from other people's perspectives. Um, so I, I, that was just something, it's just a random note that I wanted to bring up, but I think it, it stems, it leads to a lot of arguments in this community. And um, one of them I saw this week on Twitter, which um, you were involved with, Porter, with um, with Eddie Walls, Eddie Drink Your Milkshake, um, who is another pro better and has been for, Many years, very well respected in in the industry, especially for his college football. Kind of everybody knows that he's a a great college football better. And I'm reading through this Twitter thread with um, you guys, kind of, I guess, arguing over the definition of of a tout because Eddie in the past has sold plays uh, and he has a winning track record. And I guess he saw a post from you, um, which was highlighting some winnings that you had in an account, which is an attempt to get more accounts. And he basically called you out and said, that's that's no different than being a tout. Um, at the end, you're trying to sell yourself. So I'll, I'll give you the opportunity to defend that. I, I kind of see both points of view here, but I, I'd like to turn this into a bit of a conversation. Yeah. So yeah, I had a little uh, Twitter war. No, not kidding. <laughs> not a war. <laughs> Just a spirited debate about touting and being a sharp, collecting accounts. And you're right. At some point, he even told me that I'm doing the same thing. I, I think it's important. And I've heard other kind of respected betters talk about this, you know, about having skin in the game. And I take skin in the game really seriously you know, it's, and people will say it's not true, but there's just no way that you're performing at your best if your focus is on selling the picks. And, you know, skin in the game, you know, it's important in kind of every, like kind of I mentioned before, entrepreneurial endeavor. It's it's not unique to sports. Having that pressure and that, you know, is, symmetrical risk reward with the people you work with is is important now i've seen some people uh kind of insult i forget what it's called the sprigger touting chart oh, yeah. but yeah. But, chart. but in my opinion it's it comes down it's it's not it's not it's pretty accurate at least on the level of 
is the guy giving the information really this altruistic, you know, just trying to help out? Um, if he's not moving the lines, forget, you know, that's not a really important person to talk about. I, I would hope that at least people listening to this podcast realize what it means if the line's not moving after someone's giving information. But otherwise, if the guy's not out there just trying to be altruistic and the market isn't that small, he he could just click buttons and, and get down, for, you know, the, the, the information. And, and that would imply that he's front running the plays or if he's not front running the plays, Let's say he gives a range, okay? What a range means is that in reality, people are clicking the button until that number is no longer good. I have a hard time just agreeing and saying that it's okay to give people 1%, 2% ROI stuff when they have no understanding. There's no education explaining to them what they're going to experience. And, you know, for me, let's say in the, in the prop industry, it, it, it's, it's impossible. You know, I'm going to click before and, and the line has no value or the line, you know, maybe there's going to be some, if you're like a, a little guy who can't get a lot, you know, touting can work for some people that are selling it and they're not being scummy. It's true. They just don't have a different avenues to succeed. My goal, you know, first goal is self-interest of producing as much money as possible. Second goal is protecting and working with my partners. So selling these picks somewhere along the line is, uh, can I say screwing or, you know, it's messing up someone's, you know, earn. And it should be important that I protect my, you know, partners and myself first. So I just don't see how it's possible to really sell picks. I could see how it's possible to sell information. Maybe you're a research guy that doesn't want to be involved in the betting space, but the actual picks in a small market it makes no sense to me. Your customers are cannibalizing themselves. That you're basically creating a community of people, whether they realize it or not, that are fighting each other to get value. That's something I don't want to be involved in. It can work for people. There is value in it, possible value in it. There are established people that do it. It's just something that to me overall seems not so great. Yeah, so I think what you get, uh, I guess we'll say criticized for a lot, uh, in the gambling community is that you are asking for accounts similar to a bunch of the other players in the industry who are all doing the same thing saying, give me your account instead of, instead of me selling you my picks, which doesn't work fundamentally. Let me give you like, give me your account. I will bet into your account and you will win money that way. So a lot of times people, pe correct, correct. So I think when you're saying like, oh, my partners and all this stuff, like I do, like essentially if you have good prop stuff, if you have good numbers, you could in theory sell that and some people would make money off them. Like, let's be just realistic. If you said, okay, I'm going to run a service. I'm going to email out the plays or I'm going to sell them through Betstamp. And I'm like, okay, I've got, you know, Jason Tatum over and then Tristan Thompson under, and you're sending in at the correct numbers. There is going to be a few people in the market who can get those prices and get value before everything gets done, assuming you're not betting it yourself. So that's one avenue. But the second avenue you mentioned is for people to just give you their accounts and then have you place it for them and they can make more money that way. So what's the, like, we, we, we know the difference, but like, why do people win so much more that way? And why is it so much less of a risk? Can you explain that to the listeners? Right. So let me first cover who gets that information. It's the people that are already on who, who get the information that are able to bet. 
It's the people that are already on top of the industry, that have technology, that have teams ready to go, not the casual person that's trying to click buttons three minutes later, four minutes later. So all you're really doing is feeding probably someone with a lot of accounts, a lot of outs, this information. The small guy is the guy who always gets left behind, just, just like in other industries, again, in these situations. So the reason why by giving an account over, you know, buying picks is that basically, one, you're getting the play at its highest possible ROI. And two, you, you, you basically have a firm understanding of how far to, I have a firm understanding of how far to take the line. Let's be real. When someone's buying picks and the line moves, you don't really think that they pay. I, I, I don't know how much subscription services are. I know they range, but you don't really believe that they're no longer inputting the picks, do you? Maybe some are, but people pay for those picks. People's mindset is a play wins or loses, not its you know expected value. And they're still entering those picks. Not everyone, but it's for sure a common thing occurring. Well, all that can be stopped if you eliminate the element that doesn't actually understand the betting component. So it's real simple. If you just are looking to make money, then it makes more sense to not just be chasing steam, chasing numbers, sometimes getting bad numbers. I mean, you can get a lot of plus EV plays. And if you put enough negative EV plays, all the profit is gone. This is a long-term game where, you know, you add up all of the plays that you put in. And if your expected value is greater than zero, you'll profit. And if your expected value is less than zero, you'll lose. So I so think that's... I think that's a good point. Um, for the most part, if, if you're asking me, I would rather hand over an account than try to get the picks myself and input them myself just for the variety of, of reasons you mentioned. So I think in there, I agree with you. I would recommend anyone to do that if they were interested in something like that to definitely not, um, you know, look for, you know, easy way outs or easy avenues and things like that. And instead potentially just trusting, um, more of someone who can do it. But the issue remains and something Rob and I chatted about yesterday is like, how do people know though? So a random guy who just stumbles across at you, how does he know that you're going to win money? How does he know there's no other risk, stiffage, stuff like that. And at the end of the day, like, how does he choose between handing an account to you versus somebody else in, in the industry? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really tough. My, my target audience in general is someone that's already in the industry. It's someone that's already experienced something else and didn't like what he saw. And it mostly, you're right, this is a small community. So a lot of it ends up being word of mouth. So it is an issue of who grows to the top of the food chain and willing to say positive or negative things. And, you know, touching on that, it's pretty risky to come out and say that someone's winning at a lower rate that's like well-respected than what they're saying, or, you know, they're winning, but you, you know, there's 2% swings going on here that you can't understand where if you're giving very little accounts, you know, it's easy to be ne negative month over month over month, even though the person you're working with is a winner, a consistent winner, a long-term proven winner. I think one of the issues is if they're a long-term loser on top of it, which is not something that we covered because there's there's one guy, I'm not even going to mention his Twitter handle or who he is in the gambling Twitter community, but he has a reputation for selling himself as a winning better, collecting tons of accounts, losing a bunch of money, disappearing for a couple of years, coming back and doing the same thing over and over again. And I think we, you know, most of us who are, are in this industry seriously know who that is. It, it doesn't matter. But the reality is this person is, is able to sell themselves as a winner. 
um, and post screenshots similar to the one that you posted, where you have a really great week where a lot of plays win. And now all of a sudden, there's a lot of people who are going to come into the space and say, wow, this guy looks like he knows what he's doing. I'm going to try to hand over 10 accounts to him. And they get stuck holding the bag for, I mean, several years, in some cases forever, because they're just never going to get their money. And I, I that's where I, I see it as, I mean, I definitely think it's safer to hand over an account to people in this business because I think there are are more winners asking for accounts than there are winners who are touting plays. So in terms of like a safety thing, I wholeheartedly agree, but I don't think it's just some foolproof proof method where somebody can log on and say, "Oh, this guy's a winner. I'm giving him 10 accounts." And I mean, I've seen the the opposite side of it. Yeah, absolutely. Look, the gift of gab is important in every business that's, you know, networking. Again, there's this weird fixation that sports betting is somehow unique or get rich quick scheme. No, the, you know, good business practice applies to this industry too. And just to men- to talk a little bit about the person that you mentioned, look, if you were in the industry and, you know, asked around and did your due diligence, and I'm not saying doing due diligence is easy, doing due diligence is extremely difficult, but, you know, most things worth doing, they're, they're relatively difficult. If they were easy, it would actually be bad. Because what that really means is that the something here is, you know, so simple that anyone can do it, which means no one can do it because there's not going to be any value if every single person can do it. So even in your situation that you explained before, there was information out there where people could have known, again, difficult to know, but with due diligence could have known. Possibly. I mean, I, I can... I can see that. I mean, I I do think that there's just a lot of misinformation in general. Like, I can't even tell you how many times people will vouch for me as an example. They have no idea what I do. They don't know what my P&L is. Like, you know, I I lost my edge on baseball over the course of many years. When I first started betting baseball, I thought I had a really big edge. By the time I was down, I'm pretty certain I had, uh, by the time I ended, I'm pretty certain I had no edge before, but I still had all sorts of people vouching for me where I'd get people messaging me saying, Oh, you know, I'm looking for someone uh, to bet baseball into these accounts this year and this and that. So-and-so gave me your name. It's like, well, so-and-so, they know me, but they don't really know what I do on a day-to-day. They don't know if I'm a winner. And I think that's, I, I'm I'm just playing devil's advocate. Like, I, and I, I'm, I'm not suggesting Porter in any way that you're out to scam people because I certainly don't believe that. Like, I, 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 in my heart, believe if people give you accounts, they are going to win. But again... I, don't, I can't verify that in any way. And I think that's where one of the challenges comes into place because we can have great conversations. You sound like a, a super smart guy, definitely positive expected value. Everything you're saying makes sense to me, but I can go back to that other guy who I was referring to earlier and say the exact same thing about him. And I think that's where we kind of get into a dilemma of, I, I don't know, and potentially someone who thinks they're going to make a lot of money is going to get burned for a lot of money. Uh, absolutely. So, you know, I think there's a human fixation on solving problems that don't have solutions. I I kind of, I used to be really into like Middle East politics and many times, you know, both sides are trying out this and that, you know, there are clearly some problems in this world that don't have solutions. And I know it's just lame or sounds like a cop-out, but, but, you know, the simple truth is to what you just said, I actually believe And I know people don't like these kind of like absolutes or maybe negative answers, but, but the answer is that I think, and this is a person that, I mean, I consider myself having a lot of experience in this industry, that there isn't an actual solution for 
It's just sometimes you take a risk and it works or it doesn't work out. This obsession that there's a solution to every question, and maybe there is, you know, maybe in 500 years, they'll be able to cryogenically freeze people and bring (laughs) them back. But today, there isn't an actual solution. There are attempts to do the right thing and figure things out. But sometimes you just enter a space of risk and you either choose to make this risk or you choose not to take this risk. I completely agree with you. I, I mean, I do go back and forth on this a lot, right? Because I think at the end of the day, it's it's on the individual to do their due diligence regardless of the situation. Whether they're buying picks from somebody or handing accounts over, I think there's always going to be some sort of risk involved in the gambling space, just in general. Like, you know, Vegas Dave makes a ton of money off of scamming people. I think he's a piece of shit just in general for what he does. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of people who do who are buying picks that are not doing their due diligence. They're just basically seeing dollar signs because this guy's tweeting some pictures and saying, oh, this is an easy way to make money and I'm going to go about it. Um, do I feel bad for those people? Yes. I mean, this happens in, in every industry. Like this happens if I'm going to take my car to a mechanic right? At the end of the day, I'm going to read some Google reviews or I'm going to ask around and say, is this guy good or is he going to fleece me because I know nothing about cars? And this is just the day to day. There's risk involved in every decision that we make. So I, I, you know, I'm with you on that overall. I mean, it's part of the reason that we're doing it at Betstamp is the verified marketplace, right? Like trying to take, um, allow people to make educated decisions. Cause I know in some cases they can't look up your long-term record. They can't look up some touts, uh, you know, handicappers long-term rep record. So they don't have the information to make that decision. And at the end of the day, they're going to take that leap because they see the dollar signs rather than um, say, you know what, I don't have enough informed uh, information or data here to make this decision. Right. By the way, which is why I really like player props, because pretty quickly, if you work with someone who has a high ROI, you can determine if they're a winner or not, while it's extremely difficult to determine if someone is a winner or has lost their edge in a one, 2% market. That is a very valid point. And I, I will give you that one because it's much, much easier to see that in a short, shorter time frame, uh, especially with the volume of the player props usually as well. So that's a good point. Um, the last thing on this topic that I just want to bring up, um, and I think part of this was uh, you, you and Eddie going back and forth, and this happens literally on a weekly basis in the gambling Twitter sphere is what constitutes being a tout. Now, the thing is, I just just Googled the word tout because I've never actually looked up the definition of, of a tout before. So Oxford languages, the noun tout, a person soliciting custom or business, typically in an aggressive or bold manner. That is the definition of the word tout. So from Eddie's perspective, I think it's fair for him to say that you are touting as well based off that definition. Now, the reality is everyone that's betting on sports or in the gambling Twitter space has their own definition of what a tout is. Some will say it's exclusive to selling picks, but I will say the actual definition of tout, you know, soliciting business in an aggressive or bold manner. We do that all the time when we're looking for accounts. Like we all but do. Then that. everyone's touting something in their life at all times. Then, but I agree. Right? But that. But I'm saying that's what the definition is. Yeah, an Instagram model posting pics. 
in a bikini is then also touting, you know, like it, there's, there's, everyone's going to be touting something at all times. Then if that, yeah. So you're right though. If that's the definition, then that's what it maybe, is. Maybe we need a new term is what I'm getting at rather than just calling people touts. Cause touts is too broad. And right. So, so look, there are a lot of, there are a lot of definitions of words like the word, uh, theory of relativity or, or whatever that means something different in the specific field than what they actually, you know, Oxford dictionary definition is, you know, most uh, people today, you know, you know, if you come from a certain mindset and someone says, you know, uh, the theory of evolution, right? They say, oh, that doesn't mean it really happened because the definition of the word theory is one thing where that's not what its scientific definition is. So, okay, based on that term, <laughs> then almost anyone in the sports industry right. is a tout. <laughs> but uh, my definition of tout in general is more specific to someone that doesn't have symmetrical risk with their you know, partner, customer, user. So usually that implies that it's one way they're selling the pick. And, you know, some people will say that they're risking their reputation, but but that's not the same as risking your money. That's not the same as truly being in the same boat with the user. I agree. I think uh, I, I echo your points on having stake in the game. I free rolled many people in the past before, but I've always said you're going to have to have at least some sort of bet. You're taking 10% of this bet or because as soon as it's not real money to them, it's completely different. Um, so uh, I'm on board with that. And I think stake in the game is huge. And if you're trying to judge um, somebody on whether they're real or not, like a tout who's who's winning, but just selling plays and and is actually not betting that stuff to me that's completely worthless i would never trust that person anyways so so we wanted to move on to a few other topics uh we've gone through some of the account stuff small versus larger markets um touting in general and even brought up some oxford definition which is great (laughs) but uh porter we wanted to get um your thoughts on just I would say the industry in general and where things are moving. So uh, obviously legalization being big. We got some great news in Canada uh, over the last week, um, which looks like it's pointing towards legalization coming very soon. And obviously in the United States, there is. Now, I know where you're located. There is no uh, legal gaming yet. But what are your thoughts on kind of the PPH versus legal versus offshore? Where do you think everything's going? (laughs) Okay, here comes a sad segment. <laughs> so, okay, the PPH space in general, I, I don't really think it's going anywhere. It, it might shrink, but at the end of the day, it's a space for credit. You know, you're not going to get a legal site giving you credit. Now, who are the customers that really want credit? Usually, let's just say they're headache people. That's most likely why they don't want to, uh, you know, put the money up front. But legalization is a false hope. (laughs) The realities of legalization are that, at least in its current structure, are that individuals who turn a profit will not be allowed to stay and continue to bet at these places. Now, Now, listen, here's where it gets really messed up. I don't think that these companies are doing anything wrong. They are actually operating. I have a business background. I'm not an expert, but they're operating at what I think is the most profitable way to market and new untapped. We're in the first inning of legalization for sports betting, and we haven't even started the game for other tools being added into the sports betting industry. We're, we're, we're pre, pre-warmups. 
So with legalization, there is a massive, massive American untapped market. And they're right. They will outspend and, you know, network, advertise and continue to get for a very long period of time, the recreational better that's going to lose. So their focus on limiting the winning better makes perfect business sense. You know, this isn't the, at least from what I was told, the 70s and 80s where the casinos gambled with the player. No, there's a board that they have to answer to. There's a certain return that they have to generate. They are operating in the way that a business should operate. So there isn't even a good, you know, it's not the American way to, to stop winners, you know, manifest destiny, let people live out their dreams. No, these are corporations trying to turn a profit. I, um, I'm really gr- glad you brought that up. Uh, I, I'm kind of at a uh, I'm the same perspective as you, but I've consulted for offshore sports books in the past. So I kind of can see it from the sports book point of view, but yeah, I mean, this is, this is business at the end of the day. Why are you going to let someone bet large amounts of money when you know that they are going to win in the long run? And, uh, you know, do I wish Will Hill would take more than a $5 bet? Absolutely. I wish that they would, but they're not going to because they know that they're going to get burned by people, um, by winning better. So, I, it's unfortunate to be a, a pro sports better and want to get down as much as you can and have these types of struggles. But I do see it from the viewpoint of, okay, if I was the CEO of a sports book, do I want to grind out like the pinnacle bet Chris model and have sharp players play and use all this data and kind of figure out what information I'm, you know, what I'm going to do with it. Like, no, I don't want to do that. I just want guaranteed easy money. That's attracting recreational bettors and letting them bet. So um, it's an interesting perspective um, that you bring there. I'm just, um, I just curious on your take, because this is one thing that I seem to have seen over the the course of the past couple of years since, um, since regulation started to happen. But I think this has been a big boom for the offshores as well, personally. And I, I can't confirm this, or but I I, rem- I remember like five dimes and Bovada, even bet online being lumped into of like, oh, like these guys won't take a bet and whatever and this and that. And now they're kind of viewed as like good guys in the industry, like weirdly enough, where it's like, okay, you know, at least they'll let me bet this amount of money because of uh, the regulated books that have come into the the, the space and. I wonder if it was just all the regulated books taking this same business approach that it's actually kind of hurting them all at once and driving more business back to offshore and potentially PPH as well, where people are starting to say, you know, I'm not, I'm not dealing with this. Yeah, yeah, it, it makes sense. Let me touch also on places in America that take slightly larger bets. Don't the people, I think, are a little bit delusional and get excited when a certain company is taking, you know, 1K or 2K or 5K, whatever they're taking. The the reason they're taking more is because the line is more efficient and more difficult to beat. So this excitement of a few places allowing a little bit more, it's a little bit of false hope. It's a little bit of more into a tougher number. And I think actually the offshores, it seems like they've taken this stance of, well, you know, these guys have this kind of piss poor business model, at least in their mind that we can generate some more users by giving them a little bit nicer limits. And uh, I just want to say, you know, honestly, a lot of people, that's how I I started betting on Bovada, you know, the same, because I just didn't know where else at the time to go. They were the avenue to kind of achieve the goals that I wanted. And uh, they, you know, they, I think also were a pretty good boom to the early Bitcoin uh, adopters when, uh, 
I knew nothing about Bitcoin when, but when they identified the account to Sharp and refused to pay in any other way than Bitcoin, it's pretty fun in 2016 for Bovada to be sending people out what I think they thought at the time was magic money. <laughs> um, okay, let, let's get into the content conversation because um, we talk about this a lot on this podcast. And um, one of the reasons for actually doing this pod, well, obviously we want to drive traffic to Betstamp. I'll be completely honest about that. And that's why we do the pod. But just in general, we were looking to carve out a, a niche in this space because um Pretty much all the sports betting content out there right now, I'll, I'll just say what I think about it. I think most of it's absolute trash. It's very much centered on providing picks to people because, again, most of the people consuming this content are recreational bettors just in general. Um, you're very active in, in the RAS Slack, like we, we talked about earlier. You tend to answer a lot of questions uh, informatively, uh, trying to educate people in the space. Um I'm just wondering if you think that there will ever be a pivot towards educational content in this space right now, um, or if you just don't think that there's a demand for it. Yeah, so actually interesting. Before that Slack, I I didn't even know Twitter gambling community existed. Like I didn't know that there was such a thing. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a nice place to bounce ideas and just more so talk about, you know, I, I actually really enjoy the educational um, content. The, the problem is educational content means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. If you're math-based educational contact, uh, content, all it means is, is modeling and understanding numbers. The, the problem is that's a relatively small percentage of the community and entering into learning you know, R and Python or even using Excel you know, tabula rosa, blank slate is a mistake if your goal is, or sorry, not, yeah, is a mistake if you don't know anything about this, uh, you know, you know, modeling or anything about that, because the amount of time that it'll take you to, imagine you develop from scratch, which is going to take a long time if you know nothing about how modeling works. Imagine you develop something that's amazing, and then you have no solution of what to do with this amazing data. That, that's, that's, you know, it's crazy. So I see a ton of um, educational content that's focused on a lot of this winning, you know, trying to win the bet and zero, literally zero. And, and it makes sense, educational content about how the betting space works, what it takes to actually generate income, not what it takes to generate winning plays or winning in more difficult markets. There's basically zero content on what it takes to make what I would consider basically replacing a lawyer or a doctor, you know, a real top end job, what it actually takes in this industry to do that. So, so right now, I, my, my hypothesis, I think I share this with Johnny, he can tell me if he doesn't, but is obviously that recreational betters take up the majority of the space, right? Like uh, the, the vast majority. And then you have like your, your kind of semi-pro above recreational where they put in a lot more time in the day they want to learn and get better but i think that's very small a very small segment of the population do you do we think that's going to change going forwards like is the amount of recreational betters going to come down people start saying like i've lost money for two or three years why am i still doing this because like for me i don't see a shift towards the educational content unless there is a shift in that mentality of the recreational user base Right. So, so one, it's going to be very difficult to fight and battle the advertising budgets of DraftKings, FanDuel. I mean, they're actually buying up 
pseudo fake educational talk show content, you know, they're not buying that for fun. They're buying that to uh, point them in a certain direction, probably. And I, I do think, though, that there's a lot of value in turning the negative. I, I don't know what a casual is, probably ne- casual, you know, you, you know, thinking probabilistically and thinking in numbers, the term casual just means a negative six, a negative seven, a negative eight percent ROI guy. And there is a ton of opportunity there to turn them from now it depends on the quality of the content, an opportunity to make them from negative eight to negative 2%. They might not realize how important that is, but they're going to feel that at the end of the day in their pocket. And, you know, for the rec or even the slightly above the rec, watching the game with buddies and breaking even, which means you're going to have a lot of memories and a lot of emotions attached to winning is a positive experience that, that can, you can change the negative eight, 7% casual into the negative two, negative one, maybe zero percent guy. And then if the content, I'm not sure how this could be done, but the content's really great, turn them into the plus one percent guy. Look, there are teams out there that can't generate more than one, two percent. So there isn't going to be content to make people crush it, but there is, there can be content, educational content to turn a casual, again, a negative six percent guy into a guy that's actually enjoying the sports betting experience. Yeah, I think Porter, you said a lot of things that I really agree with there. First first off, mentioning that it's a difference between being a winning better and actually generating your income and earning from sports betting. So when you mentioned like a doctor or a lawyer salary, I think to make money sports betting and to just take advantage of, you know, a couple bonuses, hit a couple stale lines, hit a couple promos, like you can make a thousand, five thousand bucks on the year. Uh, no problem if you're using enough accounts. But that's not really like supplementing your income. That's saying, yeah, I'm a winning better, uh, but more of like on the side, right? Uh, to make like, you know, half mil, million dollars a year from betting is a completely different beast and takes more than just being a 1% ROI better. So like you have to scale that and to scale it comes with typically a lower ROI and things like that. But all in, I agree with what you said there in terms of like there being a big difference. And then next on the content side, I think, when you're saying, yeah, watching the games with your buddies and then earning minus 2%, like that's a an all-in plus expected value play. Like when you're watching games, that's your night. You know what I mean? Like getting together with the boys, watching a game, going nuts because this guy scored a goal and you ha- or this guy hit a home run and you had him to hit a home run. Like that value that you get, even if you're losing at the end of the day, 2%. So say you're betting a hundred bucks, you're losing your two bucks that $2 is well worth it in entertainment value spent, similar to going to a bar and, and buying, you know, drinks that are more expensive than getting them at the liquor store, things like that. It's it's a completely different mindset if you're going to be in that. But where I want to go and ask you this question is, for me, I believe that there will be a significant shift towards those minus 2% betters. And the reason is because this is what I feel has been a trend in the offshore industry as well. Everyone right now in legalization, in legalized markets, these DraftKings, FanDuel, all these big companies are hitting everyone with big offers. They're getting a lot of new players who have never played before. And sure, those players are going to start off minus 8%, minus 9%. If you're a barstool customer, minus 19%. But what what we want to do is like, so when you start off there, you know, you're going to deposit your 200 bucks. Okay, you lose it. You're going to deposit another 200 maybe. 
you're going to, you, you might lose it. Eventually people stop depositing 200 and you become either one of two streams. Either you continue to deposit your 200 and then that goes up to 300, 400, 500. And you, you enter what I would call a problem gaming space. And, um, obviously it's a different industry. It's a different issue in the industry that I guess we won't, we don't have to touch on now, but so if you keep depositing and keep losing, then yeah, you're going to be in that percentage of the population. That's a problem gambler, but eventually you're either going to stop depositing because you're like, I'm sick of depositing 200 bucks every week and never winning money, or you're going to take the time and go seek out content relationships. You're going to just learn overall on yourself from different experiences. And you're going to become, you know, from that negative eight to negative six to negative four to negative two, and then eventually maybe one day to break even. But for the most part, I don't think that the recreational better minus 6% lasts forever. There has to be a shift. You can't just continue to deposit 2% every 200 bucks, sorry, every single week and continue to lose money. So what are both, I guess, both your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a big believer in applying information from other industries and other works into, you know, whatever industry you're doing. So here we're talking about sports betting. So somewhere, I can't remember if it's Tlaib or Gladwell, he talks about how the American mindset is built slightly different than the European. And it has to do with something about how the people that came here about freedom and the American revolution. I forget. It's a very long-winded, complicated explanation of how manifest destiny, how, how things are a little bit different in the American mindset about losing and winning and accepting, you know, you know, this is my current reality and changing your future, you know. Maybe it's something about the American dream. I, I don't know exactly how it works, but yes, I, I think the mindset of, of it's more likely to happen here because it didn't really happen in Europe, you know, but the mindset here in America, I think from other works that I've read does lead me to believe that, that there probably is a good chance that there should be a shift when I, I don't know, but that there should be a shift at some point. Yeah, from from my perspective, um, I, I'm looking at the regulated uh, profit or revenue numbers that are being reported just in general on, on a, uh, a monthly basis. Um, there's a good follow on Twitter, Alfonso Strafan. I think he's uh, in Mexico. I could be wrong about that. Maybe Costa Rica. Costa Rica, possibly, yeah. Um, who's posting a lot of links every day, which I read and, and I look into. I think one of the challenges that all these major regulated books, DraftKings, FanDuel, William Hill, PointsBet, are all facing right now is that none of them are really profitable. And part of that is because they're paying so much to acquire their players. Um, so for those that don't know, sports books will pay um, affiliates, usually a CPA, a cost per acquisition, sometimes a rev share deal. Very rare nowadays that it's rev share, but uh, they'll pay a CPA to get a player. So they might say, okay, you send me a player and he deposits, I'm going to pay you $400 for that player. Okay, that's great. What happens if that player in the long run is only worth $100? And I think these sportsbooks are starting to see that, especially when players lose so quickly, it becomes a horrible exp experience for them. If you're a, a better, you deposit $100, you lose it all in a couple days, you're very unlikely to deposit again. Now that sportsbook is not retaining you or they're going to have to pay a huge bonus to get you to deposit again. I think that's what we're seeing right now. So I personally do think over the course of time, we're going to start to see sportsbooks say, oh, maybe we shouldn't be trying to, you know, completely burn these guys immediately and try to attract a different type of better and produce some actual educational content rather than just picks to get them in the door. So I do think it's going to happen at some point. Um, I just don't think that we're anywhere close to that yet. 
But um, that that's just my two cents. I, I think that these sports books at the end of the day are going to see the bottom line and say, we're going to have to switch this business model somehow. And I think it's going to be going after a player that might lose less, but stick around for a much longer time. And, yeah, exactly. I, and I think that's probably the player that they want to target in the long run. I've said this on this podcast before, but it's not, it's actually not fun to bet. Nobody has fun betting. It's winning is fun, right? Losing money betting is, is no fun at all. If you bet a thousand bucks and you lose it, nobody in the room with you that bet the thousand dollars is going to say, ah, I lost a thousand, but ah, it's all right. I had fun. That's not how it is. The fun is that you, you, you might lose a thousand one day and the next day you win a thousand and the high might be better than the low and all in you're having a ton of fun because, okay, I won six bets, lost five. The fun is in the winning. So it's like Rob said, if you're going to continue to, if you're going to deposit 500 bucks a week and keep losing it fast, you're going to have a better bottom line for the sports book, but it's only temporary because that guy or girl is not going to deposit back. It's not going to be a long-term person who uses sports betting as a form of entertainment. And that's where I feel like the industry is going. So for me, it's uh, like, it has to change into a more like a lower ROI for the sports book. Otherwise it's, uh, you're going to just lose too many customers. Uh, so, question, Porter, move on, Porter, one more question for you. I'm just curious if you do consume any content in the sports betting space now. Like, obviously, you're active on forums and the Slack channel. Is there anything else that on a day-to-day you're you're watching, listening to, any podcasts, anything like that? You, you mean besides your guys? One. Um, thanks thanks for oh. the plug. We didn't pay him for the plug, just so for anyone listening. <laughs> you can follow Circles Off on Twitter, at Circles Off. You can follow <laughs> Rob at Rob Bazzola. Uh, you could, I don't have Twitter, but you can follow at Betstamp and then Porter at MLBK's Psychic. <laughs> nice, nice guys. <laughs> um, so in, in general, the type of content that I try to consume is content that more applies to the growth of my industry, um, the, the growth of my business. Um, I, I always think of this kind of sad story. Um, no, Nobody gets rich off being the inventor the people that get rich are the people that are the entrepreneurial you know people you know you know tesla what's his uh, nikolai he, he, died, he died broke or I forget. however it works usually the inventor isn't the guy that it works out for another sad story is usually the engineer who's sitting in the room who almost certainly is the smartest guy in the room and you know smart air quotes um he, he's not making the most either so, you know, it's, it's, it's sad that his manager, his boss, the guy hustling for, uh, you know, whatever the business is, is making more than them. So there, there is a person out there where I kind of just saw his, you know, uh, bravery of being, you know, out there in this space of really understanding the business. And I'm talking about spanking, you know, kind of he just gathering, gathering accounts, the real power in this industry overall is I understand that origination, and this is kind of poo-pooing on what I do, but, you know, origination is honestly overrated. If you, you'll take some hits, but when you finally meet the right person, you know, the real power, in my opinion today, and when I say power, I'm just talking about making money, is in the networking and gathering of accounts. And you see this in every business, the gift of that gab guy, the guy, you know, networking, connecting, you know, he's the one that really has the growth potential if you're feeding some group telling them i want x amount of dollars it's probably one hard for them to get you more than that x amount of dollars it's not going to happen and you're stuck where 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 you are and that's it 
Yeah. There, I, so for example, there isn't educational content even for originators on what really who makes the big bucks, you know? I think there's that famous story with Billy Walters where all of a sudden the guy found out whoever was originating that Pitley was making 50 trillion times more than he was and it blew up, you know? Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I think like, like you mentioned, it's the same with any under any other industry. Like networking is is really big, and and who knows, maybe um, some more educational content will come in the future in terms of like what's really going on, like you're mentioning, and we'll we'll see who who's able to lead that. So we had I reached out to a few people in the community for some questions that they may want to ask you. We'll we'll knock off two real quick, and then we'll close off because we're we're just over an hour now. So first, if you can get a quick answer, so what sport slash betting market uh combo do you think is the easiest to beat so if you were a rookie and you're or you're telling a rookie hey i'm gonna start you're gonna start originating start with this market go all right so i'm gonna actually give something here that i was considering not to say but here we go this is honestly what every single rookie better should do log into pinnacle log into bookmaker scroll through every single tab and see which category they allow the least amount of money to be bet on that's the category you should be hitting. That is a great answer, by the way. That's exactly what I tell people all the time. Look for the lowest limits at the sharpest books, and that is the one that you should start with. Good answer. So I know I know Pinnacle is not accessible to everyone, so I'd even say, yeah, just go to a bookmaker or bet Chris. And, uh, and also, to add, monitor the times when limits are opening. And then if you if you did want to you know focus on like hitting small or maybe not hitting that screen if you want to hit elsewhere make sure you do it before the times that limit open uh, circles come off otherwise they're obviously going to be hitting into more efficient lines. Uh, okay, second uh, question. Right, that's uh, that's about understanding the market and not understanding sports betting. Different components for success in an industry. Exactly. Uh, okay, and then so so next one would be. So pros typically like have their best win loss story, right? But at the end of the day, like if if you get boned on a on a point spread bet uh, because of, like a safety or something like that in the NFL, it's it's a bad story, right? But with player props specifically, I know that the the potential to get you know absolutely boned or screwed on a huge play is is even more because like the players they're not playing for like an amount of yards or an amount of free throws, so. What's your craziest win or loss uh, on a player prop story? Like your, your worst loss or your best win? Yeah, so on, on the loss side, um, I had two, but actually after looking at them, one, one is just a lot more ridiculous than the other. So there was, I think it was a playoff game. I can't remember if it was a year or two, whatever. It could have been a regular season game. Basically, Embiid was having a ridiculously horrible game. And whatever his line was, 33, 34, he was 19 points away from uh, getting there. And the game was, it was a complete blowout. And I don't know, for fun, the coach decided to leave him in the entire quarter <laughs> while they're down, I don't know, 25, 26 points. But actually, they made it semi-competitive. And now they're with 0.5 seconds. And, and Bede starts, and he sits, you know. They went on a run. He had to take a little rest. And now there's sub one second left in the game. And magically, there's two and a half points left to holding the under. Who comes trotting out down nine points with point, I think it was 0.6 or 0.7. It was right above a catch and shoot moment. Who comes trotting out to the top? None other than Embiid. So the camera just magically zooms into this moment. And you see Marcus Smart kind of joking, like, what, what, what do you, I don't know what he's saying, but something to the extent of, what, what are you guys doing? Why, why are you out here? So... 
And uh, I think there's a meme for this. Uh, it goes something like, uh, and that's when he knew. And uh, <laughs> yeah. they inbounded the ball to Embiid. And, uh, you know, Marcus Smart puts up his hand. He's only like, you know, two feet shorter than him in this uh, joking manner. Still a tough contested shot. And I, I think the viewer knows how the story goes for the protagonist here. Yes. It's funny that uh, whenever this question is asked, regardless of which better it's asked to, they always start with the worst beat. Like, that's what comes to mind. It's never like, oh, yeah, I'll tell you about the greatest win I ever had. It's always like the pain that was inflicted because, man, some of the some of these late game situations in sports, like they'll just have you pull your hair out. We got to start asking people these questions every time we get an interviewer. I was actually involved in a straight bet situation once where, uh, I don't know, they were down three touchdowns at the end and the two minute drill took 29 minutes. You can start to visualize the insanity of the things occurring for a two minute drill to take 29 minutes. So something like four flags later, uh, nine miss uh, markings with the flagpole on there being the first uh, down <laughs> somehow 15 plays occurring in a two minute drill. And, uh, the other team walking off the field as the other team is scoring the uh, run-in uh, touchdown to cover the spread, that, that's, a, that's a more uh, painful uh, story not involved in the prop market where, I don't know, a chain of 1% uh, events occurred in a span of two minutes. There were 15 of them in a row. <laughs> so that one is a little bit more unique. Yeah, no, we have so many. I, I have myself like probably 10 to 12, like just bad beats that are absolute insane in player props. I'll tell one quick one now. So a, a couple of years ago, it was a Bills versus Dolphins game. Uh, Kenyon Drake was the starting running back on the Dolphins at the time. He, I had a pretty big prop play on him to get under uh, on his receiving yards. And I'd hit this down across everywhere I could. So it was like an under 34 and a half, 32 and a half, 31, 30, 28, all the way down to like a 24 and a half where, where it closed. And um, so all game, he had like one catch for six yards, nothing. And like, I got to get the exact stats later so I can retell the story better, but all game, nothing. Um, then Game is essentially over. Dolphins, they get a touchdown. They're they're kicking an onside kick to the Bills. If Bills recover it, game's over. Uh, they kick the onside kick. Bills recover it. But the, for the first time in like 10 years, return the onside kick to the house for a touchdown, which it's happened a few times since, but that was the first time it had happened in years. So Bills return it to the house for a touchdown. Um, now at this point, it's like only a couple seconds left in the game still. Game's officially over. Miami should definitely just kneel this game out. Um they they throw it, quick screen. Buffalo's playing obviously a heavy prevent. Goes direct to Kenyon Drake. I'm like, oh my god! And I still have room, right? They just got to tackle him. Like he can get at this point, like literally like a 15 yard catch. I'll still be fine. He's running. They're not tackling him. Um, at this point, there's also a hold on on the throw. So Miami was holding as well. So there's a flag there. I'm like, okay, what? Like what the hell's going on? He runs ends up finishing just over the last bet for me to lose every bet. So over the 34 and a half. Um, but I'm like, okay, there's a hold still. It go And the, there's now zero time on the clock. Goes to the ref and he's like holding Miami on the offense. This penalty will be like, it just like doesn't count. He's like, I forget the exact term he said, but he's like, this penalty will not count, will not be enforced. 
the game is over and I'm refreshing my apps and checking online. Like, does this play count? You got to be kidding me. Like, what the hell's going on? And sure enough, play counts. He ends the game over his receiving yardage total and I lose it on the returned onside kick and then a penalty disregarded unbelievable loss so yeah that's that's one for the ages for sure that's that's like a literally like a one in 10 million type of thing like that's how bad it is because they have to the onside kick has to go to the house like uh, i mean those are the type those are the, like the nightmare fuel ones right but why was he even in the game See, it's like Embiid. that's the the more frustrating ones with the player props are because when you have a, a full game line it's like okay you're never going to complain because they're, they're still playing the game you still have to play the game when you have a player prop it's like why is Joel Embiid checking back into the game? Why is Kenyon Drake on the field? The game is 100% over. Put in the backup QB, kneel it out, and on to next week. That's it, there, right? So there's so many random things. Like um, when I w- This is long before I became a professional better. This is like me in university or, or high school, maybe even betting the NFL, like pure recreational, horrible, horrible better, where I used to bet 13-point teasers. And there was a game against the with the Bills and the Raiders where I took the Bills and teased them up to like something like plus eighteen or plus seventeen, something like like really really dumb bet, and should have covered. But the the Raiders had I believe Zach Crockett was the running back. I'm trying to remember this game, and he had like ninety seven yards. And they should have been the Raiders should have kneeled the ball, but they wanted to get Crockett to like a hundred yards, so. This guy runs it all the way to the house for a touchdown inside like the last 30 seconds to make the Raiders win by 21. I'll never forget that play in my entire life because, you know, it's me and a group of friends all high-fiving each other like we won our bets. And we see Zach Crockett. He's like he's like fired up. He wants the ball, right? He's running into the game to, to get, get the ball one more time so he can get his three yards, takes it all the way to the house. But um, yeah, it's funny. We all remember the bad beat stories. I just, I love that about sports betters in general. <laughs> Yeah. So, okay. Last question. It's our closing question that we ask all of our guests. Uh, goes something along the lines of, if you could go back in time five years and tell your five years ago self one piece of advice, uh, Porter, what would it be? So, you know, directly to me, I would have told myself to stop being a nit. It's like a poker term about being overly tight and conservative. I can't even think how much incredible amounts of value and money on the table over the years, especially in the early days I left. And um, kind of like the segue is um, just to leave the, you know, the listener on a final note, having the data is just a small part of this industry. It's all about what you do with it. When the data is not plentiful to others and yourself, that's the best moment to strike. Uh, The chaos and confusion it's good for people that have an edge. The less data there is, the better it is for you. If you're an edge person, you're going to win the battle at the end of the day. Most people in this industry, they focus on improving their prediction models, at least the ones that are trying to be successful at sports betting. Few, very, very, very few focus on what's actually important, the payoff. Uh, accuracy only matters the same as payoffs in theory much, much less so in practice. While everybody's focusing on the accuracy, uh, story to myself, you focus on the payoff. That's what I would have told myself. That's really good. It reminds me of Mayweather McGregor. No data available, edge of a lifetime. Johnny definitely disagrees with me on that, as we've we've talked about before. But no, it's, it's actually good advice. Um, um, I think everyone is kind of 
working in the same capacity now, trying to replicate what others do. And in situations like that, like you, you use the word chaos, uh, I think. I think that's a really good piece of advice that people could take away from this. Uh, appreciate you joining us this week, Porter. It was a pleasure to talk to you and meet you. Thank you guys for having me. I had a great time. Uh, Thanks, ho- Porter. Hopefully we could do it again soon. I know there's other stuff we wanted to talk about uh, with you as well. So maybe we'll make this a- another appearance down the road, but really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you to everyone for tuning in to episode 16 of Circles Off. If you do enjoy the podcast, please rate and review five stars.